0: my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who He is, and what He's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. This is going to be our fifth and final episode looking at the book of Kings. And before we leave the book of Kings, we want to take some time to look at some lessons that we can learn, some truths that we can apply in our lives from the books of First and Second Kings. Now, just as by way of reminder, uh, when we think about application, we want to think about three words— Uh, That all begin with the letter P. The first of those words is the word purpose. God gives us His word for the purpose of transforming us into the image of Christ for the glory of His name. So if we read the Bible, whatever part of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, any book of the Bible, and we don't ask the question, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? We have, in some manner of speaking, wasted our time and we've missed the point altogether. So let's be people who both hear and do the Word of God. The second word that we want to remember is the word pace. Real change does not happen overnight, doesn't happen over a weekend. It happens slowly, gradually, as the Apostle Paul says, from one degree of glory to another over the course of years, if not decades. Don't try and change everything about your life all at once. Choose one thing. Let the Holy Spirit lead you to one area of your life and seek to apply God's truth in your life in the strength that he provides. Slow and steady growth. The goal is not to go from a 2 to a 10. It's to go from a 2 to a 2.1. The third word we want to remember is progression. We've all had that experience of, of walking out of a sermon or out of a conference on fire, ready to to make some big change in our life, and a week or two goes by, and the passion begins to fade, and before you know it, we're right back to where we started, if not worse off. So we want to first hear the truth of God. God gives us what I call universal truths. These are truths that are true for every believer, Old Testament, New Testament, North America, Asia, everybody, men, women, young, old, rich, poor, everybody. And from those universal truths, we can draw a universal implication. We can draw an implication from that truth, a therefore, that would be true for all of God's people. God is holy, therefore I should be holy. And then we can find a specific individual application. So in this podcast, just because I can't speak to all of you at once and don't know all of your life situations, we're going to be talking on those first two levels, these timeless truths and these universal implications. And I'll leave it to the Holy Spirit to put on your heart a specific individual application. Now, one more thing, just for the sake of time, we're not going to have an opportunity to read every single one of the scriptures that will go with these truths. I'll try and point you to the reference, and you guys can go look those up for yourselves. But we're going to just be looking fairly quickly at really about 15 or 20 truths from both First and Second Kings, and I'll let the Holy Spirit take it from there. So first, God is the one who exalts and brings low to accomplish his will. As Kings begins, David is about to die and his sons are about to fight for the throne. And it seems like his oldest son, Adonijah, has all of the advantages. He's the oldest, he's good looking, he has the priest behind him, he has the military behind him, yet it's Solomon who ends up on the throne because that's who God wanted there. The second truth that we should remember, parents should teach their children to walk faithfully before God. In light of God's covenant promises, parents can tell their children, walk faithfully before God. Yes, it might make this life really, really great, but you might be poor and suffer and be thrown into prison too. But we can be absolutely certain as parents that eternally speaking, walking faithfully before God is the very best choice that we can make and that our children can make. David tells this to his son Solomon before he dies, in 1st kings chapter 2. Now we know that David is an imperfect messenger and that Solomon is certainly not a perfect hearer and follower of this good advice, but it's still good advice. Parents should teach their children to walk faithfully before God, not because we're certain our kids will be perfect or they'll get it right, but because we want to point our kids to the faithful character of our God. He will never break a promise. Third, God is the source of all true wisdom. And to get wisdom, we can learn a lesson from Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, God asked Solomon, what do you want from me? Most people would have asked for wealth or military success or a long life. Solomon says, I need wisdom. Lord, I don't know how to guide these people. These are your people. Give me wisdom. And that's true for us too. The number one thing we should do is we should ask God for wisdom. But alongside that asking, not replacing the asking not as a, you know, last ditch the night before the test kind of thing, but alongside that asking, we should study His Word. Solomon likely had, at most, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He didn't have, certainly not the New Testament, he didn't have God's full Word written down. So we both ask for God's wisdom, but we also study God's Word. That's how God gives us wisdom. Fourth, we must be careful about the company that we keep. Tragically, in 1 Kings 11, we're told that as Solomon grew old, he married all of these foreign women, and they worshiped foreign gods, and they drew Solomon's heart away from worship of Yahweh. And the same thing will happen to us if we're not careful. The people we spend the most amount of time around are the people who influence us, and we will find ourselves becoming more like them. Here's how I like to explain it because we don't want to go too far to one side and never talk to an unbeliever. But think about when you were maybe, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, and you would go to a swimming pool, and you and your friends would have, you know, rings or, or brightly colored sticks, and you throw them into the, the deep end of the pool, and you would dive in, and you would go down, and you would get the rings, and you try to come up, right? You could just spend hours doing that. Well, if you go to the pool, and you just kind of sit there, on the side and watch other people do things. That's kind of boring. But because we're human beings, we can't live on the bottom of the pool. We spend most of our time above the surface of the water, breathing in oxygen, talking to our friends, and then we dive down for a purpose. The purpose is to recover those rings. Now, that's a pretty silly illustration, but I hope you can see where I'm going. As believers, we want to spend most of our time above the surface. We want to spend most of our time with other believers, encouraging one another, strengthening one another, but we want to go down, we want to go down for the purpose of trying to find the lost and bring them to the Lord Jesus. So I'm not telling you that First Kings teaches us never spend time with unbelievers or don't have friendships with unbelievers, but rather be careful. Be careful that we don't build our lives where most of our time is spent with people who don't know Jesus, because as First Corinthians 15 warns us, bad company corrupts good character fifth lesson from 1 Kings, there are dreadful consequences for leading people into sin. After Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam makes a bad choice, the kingdom of Israel is split in two, and the first king of the northern kingdom is Jeroboam. But Jeroboam leads the people of Israel, God's people. He leads them into idolatry, a path from which the northern kingdom will never return. And the fate of Jeroboam is dreadful. As Jesus warns us, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Sixth, when we fear man instead of God, we are headed for disaster. Asa is a king of Judah. He's from the line of David, and he starts off really strong. Think, oh man, this is the best king we've met so far. But in his old age, he fears the king of Israel, and so he makes a treaty with the king of Syria instead of trusting in God. But this was a terrible choice. It says in Second Chronicles 16, 7-10, this is not from First Kings, is from 2 Chronicles, but it's giving us the same story with a little bit of extra information. After Asa does this, after he makes this treaty with the king of Syria, it says, At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? This is referring to a story from when Asa was younger, when he faced an army of nearly a million men. But the prophet reminds him, Because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. I love this verse. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You, Asa, have done foolishly in this, for from now on, you will have wars. God wants us to trust him. And when we fear man, and like Peter getting out of the boat, we take our eyes off of Jesus, we are headed for disaster. Seventh, idols are weak and powerless, they're dead. Only the living God can save. And we see this perhaps most clearly in all of Scripture in 1 Kings 18 as the prophet Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a, the God contest, as one of my kids' books puts it. And the prophets of Baal call for their God to send fire from heaven, and they call and they cry and they dance and they cut themselves, and of course nothing happens. They're, not, they're talking to air. There is no such thing as Baal. But Elijah calls to the living God, and he sends fire to prove that he is the one true God of the universe. Eighth, when we are discouraged, God deals gently with us. Right after that story, that literal mountaintop experience for Elijah, as he calls down fire and all the people of Israel respond, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God, Elijah then receives a threat against his life from the wicked queen Jezebel, and Elijah runs for it and is discouraged, and is just crying out to God, oh, I wish I was dead. And God doesn't come around and slap Elijah and tell him, get yourself together, you're embarrassing yourself. He's gentle and speaks softly to him and provides for his needs. I'm so grateful that we serve a God who is gentle and rich in mercy and sustains us. Ninth, there are consequences for disobedience. God may delay those consequences to give us a chance to repent and because we've trusted in Christ for God's people, the eternal and ultimate consequences for disobedience, death and hell, we don't have to face. But God will bring consequences into our life when we disobey his commands. We see this all throughout scripture, and we see it clearly in 1 Kings chapter 20 with King Ahab. He is perhaps the most wicked king of the northern kingdom. And yet God is, strangely from our perspective, merciful and gives Ahab chance after chance. And yet Ahab continues to disobey, and every time he does, God sends consequences. This is God trying to get Ahab's attention. And to our knowledge, Ahab never listened. But when God sends discipline to us, it's not because he hates us, it's because he loves us. And he's trying to turn us away from the path that we're walking, a path of disobedience, because God knows where that path leads. Tenth, coveting. Leads to many other sins. As we've talked about in other units, the pattern of sin that we see in Scripture is we see, we desire, we take, we suffer. And so coveting this violation of the 10th commandment, this sin that in many ways is the invisible sin, it leads us to adultery, it leads us to stealing, it leads us to lying and to murder, it leads us into so many other sins. But since God is sovereign over what we have and over what we don't have, we should always be grateful for what we have, and we should be content. Again, unlike King Ahab. One of the worst stories about Ahab is Ahab, who's wealthy. He lives in an ivory palace. That's an obscene amount of wealth that he possesses. But he wants his neighbor's vineyard because he wants to turn it into like an herb garden. He doesn't need it. He just wants it. And because he wants it and can't get it, he mopes and he whines and he allows his wife, Queen Jezebel, to have this innocent man murdered so that he can take his vineyard and turn it into a vegetable garden. It ends in murder and it begins with coveting. So guard your heart, the book of Proverbs says, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, that's 1 Kings. And briefly, we want to kind of zip through some lessons and applications that we learned from 2 Kings. So first lesson from 2 Kings, God judges those who reject his servants. Remember, First and Second Kings were originally one book, and they were only divided uh, whenever later translators added vowels into the Hebrew alphabet that was written in consonants only, and that basically doubled the length of the book of Kings, and therefore we had to divide it in half. So that's what we have First and Second Kings in our Bible. So, as 2 Kings begins, Elijah is still alive, and he is dealing with the wicked king of the northern kingdom, Ahaziah, one of Ahab's descendants, and Ahaziah gets sick. Elijah confronts these messengers that uh, Ahaziah has sent to the prophets of Baal, and Ahaziah rejects Elijah, and he perishes. Those who reject God's servants are headed for disaster. As Jesus says in Luke ten sixteen, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Our response to the word of God is life or death. Second lesson from Second Kings, God has power over death. As we see a story of Elijah, the last story of Elijah really, is that Elijah is taken up alive into heaven. It says in Second Kings chapter 2, that Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, again, this is a strange story. As far as we know, only Elijah and Enoch were taken directly up into heaven without perishing. But God adds these stories to show us that there is hope for the faithful beyond death, that God is sovereign over life and death. And if we trust in God, again, put yourself in the position of the original readers of 2 Kings living in exile living 500 years before Jesus. They don't know about the resurrection yet, but they're being told that you serve a God who has power and authority over death. He's worthy of your trust and your worship. And we, 2,000 years after the resurrection, we have even more reason to trust and to have hope. We serve a God who is sovereign over life and death. Third, God will save anyone who turns to him in repentance and faith. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of your nationality, if you turn to the living God, you will be saved. One of everybody's favorite stories in the book of 2 Kings is the story of Naaman, the Syrian general who trusts in God, who hears the word of the prophet Elijah, and he goes and washes himself in the Jordan River, and he is healed and becomes a worshiper of Yahweh. It's a beautiful story, and it shows us what God will do. He will wash us and make us clean, no matter our sins, if we trust and obey. Fourth, God may delay his judgment, but the wicked have no hope apart from repentance. So in 2 Kings chapter 9, we see the final fate of Jezebel. Now, she was married to King Ahab, and Ahab dies at the end of 1 Kings. And we're not told exactly how many years later. It's probably anywhere from three to five years down the road after Ahab's death, Jezebel is still alive. She could have at any point sort of looked at her life and looked at what all of her intrigue and idolatry had got her and she could have turned in repentance, but she doesn't. And so God raises up an avenger, a man named Jehu, And he commissions him to wipe out the house of Ahab for their sins. And Jezebel is destroyed because she did not respond in repentance. Fifth, we must reject half-hearted devotion to the Lord. A descendant of that Jehu that we just mentioned is a man named Jehoaz. And we're told that when he was in trouble, he would pray. But then once the trouble passed, he would lead the people right back into idolatry. And we can read this story in Second Kings 13, and we can sort of, oh, I can't believe he would do that. But how many times do we do that? When we're really in a jam, that's when we find ourselves praying constantly. But as soon as the trouble passes, we go right back to ignoring God. We go right back to living our life our way until the next problem crops up. And then we throw ourselves on our knees and, and beg, let's not be like that. Let's reject half-hearted devotion to the Lord and give ourselves to Him completely in good times and in bad. Sixth, children are not saved or condemned based on their parents. If you take a step back and look at the kings described for us in the book of Kings, you'll see that one of the very best kings of Judah, a man named Hezekiah, a man of amazing faith and righteousness, He has an incredibly wicked son, Ahaz. Ahaz doesn't get to go to heaven based on the righteousness of his father. He is judged for his own actions. And another one of the best kings, maybe the best king in the entire Bible, except for Jesus, King Josiah, his father Amon, was incredibly wicked. Josiah is not condemned for the sins of his father, but rather is credited with the righteousness of Christ based on his own obedience. Seventh, being faithful to God doesn't exempt us from suffering. We meet King Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 18, and he immediately begins a, a period of restoration and revival, and he's throwing at the idols and leading the people into worship. And after all of his acts of faithfulness, God brings the king of Assyria, the, the dominant world superpower of Hezekiah's day, and the king of Assyria conquers most of his land. Being faithful to God does not mean everything is going to go perfect in this life. It means we have ultimate hope. It means that we can always rejoice, but it doesn't mean that we're going to be exempt from suffering. In fact, Jesus and Paul tell us in the New Testament it means just the opposite. As Paul says, it's only through trials and tribulations that we will enter into the kingdom. And Jesus tells us that in this world, we will have trouble. Eighth, pride goes before the fall. God loves humility. He loves when people trust him. He hates pride. And he will defeat pride wherever he finds it, in the hearts of his own people, certainly, but also in the hearts of unbelievers. God defeats this king of Assyria, this most powerful man in the world, because of his arrogant boasting. In 2 Kings 18, the king of Assyria is trash-talking the people of Judah, saying, you know, you're trusting in your God. Other people's trusted in their gods. Their gods didn't save them. Your God won't save you. And those words of boasting seal his fate, as God is going to show the king of Assyria who the real superpower is. Ninth, God is merciful to those who cry out when in need. In 2 Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah is told that he's going to die from sickness, And he cries out to the Lord and pleads for his life. And God does not change his mind. God never changes his mind. But God grants Hezekiah more life. Now, on one level, the thing I want you to see here is that God is merciful. And when we cry out to him, he is a good father. And if answering the prayer, if giving us what we ask for, is going to advance his kingdom and bring us good, then he'll do it. But that's not changing his mind. What I want you to see is that God uses our prayers to accomplish his ordained outcome. God desired that Hezekiah would live past this disease, but he wanted Hezekiah to pray so that God could give him a longer life. So again, there's mystery here. and We're not going to dive into it to this point, but your prayers matter, my friends. And God is merciful to those who cry out when they're in need. And tenth, God is faithful to his covenant promises. After all the terrible decisions made by the kings of Judah, after all of the punishments that God sends, after the exile of the people from the promised land, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the Davidic monarchy, the last paragraph in the book is of King Jehoiachin, a descendant of David who's been in Babylonian prison for 30 years. And we're told that he is released from prison, given clean clothes and a seat at the table of the king of Babylon. And it's a strange story. But we're being told that despite the sin and rebellion of his people, God's covenant promises march onward, and the true king is getting closer. So friends, next time we come together, Lord willing, we're going to begin an examination of the book of Isaiah. But for now, take up and read. God bless.